And I think the thing that drove, drove me to write the book and the question that lies at the heart of it is when people use the word God, what do we mean by that word? So often when we talk to our friends and other faiths, Aaron, I think that the problem we do is we use words and we assume that everybody in the room means the same thing. So Christians use the word God. Our Muslim friends use the word God. Our atheist friends use the word God. They say they don't believe in God. And we assume that word has the same reference, the same meaning in each case. And I think it's that's where so many mistakes begin. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. Our world can be a confusing place to live in, and what I seek to do on this show is to equip you with biblical resources to understand the times that we live in and then to live in them well, so that through the answers that we get from the Christian worldview by looking at scripture, you might be able to face our chaotic, confusing world with wisdom, integrity, and courage. One of the uh, confusing aspects of our life today is in the relationship between Christianity and Islam. There are many out there today, maybe Christian, uh, Muslim, or even someone who doesn't belong to either one of those faith traditions, who claim that Christians and Muslims actually worship the same God. My guest on today's show tackles that question uh, and that argument in this conversation that we go through today. His name is Andy Bannister. Andy has a long experience in working with Muslims and is actually an expert uh, in Islam and in their main religious text, which is the Quran. Andy is the director of the Sola Center for Public Christianity, an evangelism and training ministry based in Scotland. He is passionate about getting the gospel out of the four walls of the church and into places like coffee shops, universities, schools, pubs, and so on. He also loves equipping Christians to share their faith at work or among their friends. He did his theological study through London School of Theology, doing first a BA in theology and then a PhD in Quranic studies. He got involved in evangelism through preaching to Muslims at Speaker's Corner in London's Hyde Park. And so he wanted to dig really deeply into understanding Islam so he can engage his Muslim friends well. This was a really, really great conversation that I got to have with Andy on uh, a broad range of issues related to the postmodern religious pluralism challenge related to the question of uh, the relationship between Christianity and Islam and our competing views of God. We also talked about the Islamic worldview versus the Christian worldview and how they contrast uh, in their view of God and in their big worldview questions. We also even got a little bit into uh, looking at the historical reliability of the Bible versus the Quran and how this impacts this whole conversation. We covered a lot in this conversation. It, it was really great. Andy was a lot of fun to talk to, just a wonderful, friendly personality. And I think you guys are really, really going to love this conversation we got to have. Before we jump into it, let me encourage you guys, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this show, whether you're watching this on YouTube, listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, wherever you are, make sure to subscribe to this episode that you'll get so that you'll get more uh, great conversations and content like this in the future automatically downloaded to your device or uh, getting a subscription 
through YouTube whenever those episodes are released. If you enjoyed this episode, it would really help us out uh, if you would leave us a rating or review. If you're watching this on YouTube, if you would give us a thumbs up, like, and a comment, even if you would share it among your friends, share it on social media. If you're listening on Apple, would you leave us a rating and then leave a review on there? Doing things like this is an easy way to really help us get the word out so that more people out there might gain biblical clarity to live in our world today. Well, I loved this conversation, like I said uh, already, and I think you guys are going to love it too. Without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Andy Bannister. Andy, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, great to be with you, uh, Aaron. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, and getting to meet and and talk this afternoon. Uh, Well, this afternoon for you, this morning for me. We are we're across the pond from each other. Uh, tell us about where you're at and what you're doing in your uh, career and ministry right now. Yeah, so I'm based uh, in uh, in Scotland, up in there, in the north of the UK, and I live in a, a town called uh, called Dundee. And uh, Dundee is about an hour north of Edinburgh. Edinburgh is the capital of Scotland, and we are actually, I think, Scotland's sixth or seventh largest city, but by UK US standards, that's so kind of pretty tiny. Um, but they're on the east coast of Scotland, and uh, from there, I run an organization called Solas, and we're a small uh, team, Aaron, that focuses on two things, really. Firstly, we're an evangelism uh, organization. We uh, love taking the gospel out of the four walls of the churches and into places where people are, so we work with churches to help put on low-key evangelism events in places like coffee shops, workplaces, restaurants, curry houses, pubs, bars, um, you name it, university campuses. A lot of that's been online in the last year because of COVID, but thankfully that's now sort of winding down here and life is returning a bit more to normal. And so we do a lot of that. And then also we help, uh, we work in terms of teaching and training Christians how to share their faith uh, with their friends at work, home, school, uh, in a kind of natural, uh, persuasive, uh, engaging way. So that's uh, that's really who we are. We do that across Scotland and in fact the whole of, uh, of the UK. Awesome. So doing apologetics training, evangelism training. Uh, so I assume you guys are doing a lot of uh, engagement with the skeptical or unbelieving community, as well as you're equipping Christians to be able to do that in their own life as well. Yeah, that's right. We do uh, we do a lot of engaging um, with those who don't you know, share our Christian faith, be they uh, those who have no faith, atheists and secularists, humanists, so forth. But then also a lot of engaging with people who have different belief systems, so Muslims, you know, Buddhists uh, and, uh, and others and, uh, and so forth. One of the things that I do find interesting, and I don't know if the same is true in the, in the USA, Aaron, Aaron is that um, over here, um, there's also a growing number, I think, of people who are not really describing themselves as anything. They're not they're not anti-Christian, but they're not pro anything. They're just sort of vaguely sort of nothing. And that's mm-hmm. interesting. And there's a lot of openness within that group. We come across a lot of that with university students, a lot of people who've actually never really met a Christian. They haven't been raised in a Christian family. They haven't, they haven't gone to Christian school. They haven't had no connection with the gospel at all. And that's interesting because they're not hostile. They're not they're not athe- anti, you know, anti-religious atheists, but they know absolutely nothing. And we're finding you've got to almost start from sort of square one, really, because you can't even mention Jesus because people will go, well, well, sorry, I don't I know the name, but who was he? Which is astounding that somebody could get to, you know, their early 20s and not know who Jesus is. But we meet a lot of that. Uh, And that's exciting because that's also the environment that the the early church spread in 
right? Sort of people, lots mm-hmm. of people who are sort of spiritual, but not religious, vaguely interested, had heard of this sort of Judaism thing, but didn't know anything else about it. And the early church into that context grew like wildfire. And so there's a lot of openness, I think, right right now in the, in, in the UK, uh, but we're having to rethink the way we do a few things. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's often a lot of lament and uh, and despair over the decline of Christendom and the what people often call the post-Christian state of the West right now. But I like how you just described what you guys do and, and more in terms of not a, a lament, but an opportunity. Uh, well, there's, there's reason for excitement in, in the time that we're in. Yeah, oh, my word there is. I think, and I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think it's very easy to look back to the sort of golden age of the past through kind of rosy-colored spectacles. You know, we look back 30, 40 years and think, oh gosh, everything was much more Christian. Well, it was outwardly, but I'm not sure if underneath it was, you know, in both the US and the UK, I think there was back then more of a sort of sense that because you know, Christianity was more of the sort of, you know, sort of cultural religion. Um, you know, people just played along because that's what you did. If you wanted to look like a nice, decent person, you went to church on Sunday and, and, and gave lip service to things. But underneath, there wasn't much. Now, I think it's far more interesting, right? Someone goes to church on Sunday regularly, you can pretty much guarantee they're a follower of Christ because there's no cultural benefit, uh, I think, mm. in doing that. Um, and I think at the same time as well, as as Christians, we're being forced a bit more into actually thinking about how we do evangelism, because rather than just sort of sitting there on our laurels and sort of letting someone else get on with it, well, there's less people to get on with it. And there's a need for more of us actually to sort of man up or woman up and actually be the ones who take Christ into our workplace. As I often say when I teach or train on evangelism, look, it's important that all of us uh, pick up the baton of evangelism, because it's very possible that, that there are people that you know at work, at home, at school, in your neighbourhood, who you may be the only Christian they know in their circle. And if you sit back and go, ah, I'll let someone else do it, well, there may be no one else to do it, and actually God is giving you the nudge to go do it. So I think it's an incredible opportunity, both in terms of the, 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 the field being white for harvest, but also in terms of Christians being you know, really pushed into actually getting out there on the front foot and uh, putting their faith into action. Great opportunity. Yeah, and I think to take advantage of the opportunity, we need more discipleship and equipping of Christians today to be able to do uh, like what you're talking about there, to see, to answer the call that they might be the one that God placed in somebody's life, to have those kind of conversations. And so to do that equipping and discipling, we need books like your new one that we are here to talk about today, uh, which is uh, Do Muslims, Muslims and Christians Worship the same God. This is your newest book that just came out on. Uh, it, it's a book engaging in apologetics with. Uh, on, on the surface, it looks like it's a book engaging with apologetics in Islam, which is true. But there's also having to deal with some uh, postmodern uh, beliefs as well. Uh, before we get into the book, just tell us about what is your uh, scholarly background and what led you to mm. uh, engaging in in Islam. Yeah, so my my academic background, uh, Aaron, is actually in Islamic studies. I, I'm unusual as a Christian that my uh, my doctoral degree, my PhD, is not in biblical theology; it's in Quranic theology. What led to that, really, in a nutshell, was uh, back in the in the late 1990s, over sort of 20 years or so ago. Now, um, I hadn't really thought much about evangelism or apologetics, or certainly not about Islam. And then one, uh, one day, a gentleman came to our church and did a seminar on, on Islam and reaching Muslims. And I think I had nothing else to do that day. So I, I kind of went along and he was an incredibly charismatic uh, communicator and really interesting to listen to. But in particular, he described how every Sunday afternoon, 
he and a group of other Christians were going up to a place in, in London called Speaker's Corner. And that's part of one of our big parks in, in London, where every Sunday afternoon you can stand on a ladder or a, or a box and talk about anything, religion, politics, sport, you know, and you're with a crowd. And thousands of people go along there to hear the hear the speakers. And he'd noticed lots of Muslims were going to, to kind of talk about Islam. So he decided to go and preach to the Muslims and was now getting crowds of hundreds of Muslims coming to listen. And we got talking after his seminar. And he said to me, well, Andy, why don't you come to Speaker's Corner next week and see what we do? So lo and behold, I turned up at the, uh, the train station in London the following uh, weekend to be met by uh, my new friend carrying two ladders. And I remember saying to him, why have you got two ladders? He went, well, one is for me to preach on and one's for you to preach on. I said, I've never... I said, I thought you've said we come and see what you do, not, not come and take part in what you do. He went, oh, the best way to, to get a handle on it is try it. And when I said, I've never preached on the street before. He went, oh, it's easy. I said, I've never talked to a Muslim before. <laughs> oh, they're easy. Both those things, Eric, were totally wrong. <laughs> I made a total fool of myself. I was, my new Muslim friends had many questions for Christians. They were well-practiced in the fine art of heckling. And I remember getting down from the ladder thinking, well, maybe I need to become a Muslim because they have all this ammunition, all these critiques of my faith. I have nothing. But thankfully, before doing anything stupid, I remember the next day going to the local Christian bookstore and and telling them, the guy behind the counter there, my sad little story. And he said, oh, what you need is apologetics. And it was the first time I'd ever heard that word. And I thought it sounded like a breakfast cereal, actually. But um, it turned out it wasn't. It was the branch of Christian theology, you know, concerned with giving a reason why we believe what we believe. And so I read some mm. books. And I read and I read and I read. I got answers to every question they asked. Went back to Speaker's Corner two weeks later. And lo and behold, they had new questions. And so I looked stupid in public all over again. But I kind of caught the bug, as it were. And so... For the next three to four months, I would go to Speaker's Corner on the weekends, look stupid in public, read and study to try and find the answers. And I fell in love, actually, with theology and I fell in love with, with actually studying Islam uh, to be able to answer the questions of my Muslim friends. And quite literally, one thing led to another. And eventually, when it came time to perhaps pursue a higher degree, I thought, or rather than you know do something obscure like study the use of the semicolon in the first chapter of John's Gospel, I thought I would actually dig into the Quran and how the Quran was put together and uh, and its origins and, and so forth and did some critical work on it, which has actually then stood me in good stead uh, for uh, firstly getting into things like universities because I'm unusual. I'm a Christian with a PhD in Islam. That does open doors. And secondly, mm -hmm. it's been so helpful over the years for engaging uh, with Muslims. Yeah. And so is that expertise and background and training that leads to uh, to this new book that you have? Uh, explain well, to right. us just yeah. So explain okay. just what is meant by you know the argument is pretty much on the title, uh, or yes. what the argument that you're responding to is 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 right there on the title. Do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? What is meant by that argument uh, that you're well, the, responding to? Yeah, the funny thing is, uh, Aaron, is that when, when everywhere that this has gone on social media in the last two or three months since its release, um, I get lots of kind of people commenting from different sides of the debate. I get one set of Christians. Uh, you know, often Christians will come at me going, well, what, why would you write a book on that? The answer is obviously no, right? Um, and then on the other side of the debate, I get sort of more sort of liberal Christians or progressive li progressive types sort of leaping on going, how could you possibly write a book like this? The answer is obviously yes. Mm -hmm. To which both communities I, tend, I like to say, well, if the answer is obviously a one-word answer and you guys all think it's the opposite one-word answer, there needs to be a book on this. And so the mm -hmm. backstory really to it is over the last few years i've noticed an increasing number of people answering it with the with the yes um you know this is this term abrahamic faiths that's thrown around you know christianity judaism islam 
lumped together. Um, a lot of more sort of liberal sort of folks sort of assume, well, obviously it's the same God, right? I mean, Jews, Jews and Muslims and Christians are all part of one, you know, happy monotheistic family. And so, and then you get some quite big names have come out on that side of the debate. Someone like Miroslav Volf, very well-known Christian theologian, wrote uh, a book a few years ago advancing that very argument. And then you hear at a more popular level. So uh, so Joe Biden, for example, and run up to the to your last presidential election, you know, came out and said very clearly that the Muslims and Christians and Jews are, you know, effectively with the same tradition. Um, and it's all the same. And then on the other side, came across, you know, evangelical Christians who sort of knew that the answer is no. They could give, the, as it were, the, the right answer. But when you gently said, well, why is the answer no? Um, they wouldn't have a thing to say. And so I thought, OK, there's a need to write... A book. There's a need to write a book to show why I think the answer is largely no. I'm a little bit cheeky. I think the answer is 85% no and a 15% yes, depending on on the Muslim. Uh, but largely it's no. Uh, but I also wanted to write a book that would both help Christians think through why that's the answer and perhaps how to explain that to, to a Muslim friend or a secular friend. But I also wanted to write a book you could actually give to a non-Christian friend, that a, that a Muslim uh, or someone who's a you know a secular person who thinks that all religions are essentially the same, that you can actually give to them and they would enjoy reading and be accessible. Um, and I think right now we do live in an age that doesn't like conflict. We do live in this age that's like, well, we want to squash everyone together. We can't have people arguing, certainly not over religion. So let's just harmonise everything. And I think mm. Christians are finding it increasingly hard, I think, uh, to operate in that in that climate, so hopefully the book is helpful, uh, particularly for say for Christians and their everyday evangelism for being able to show, say why they're not the same and to do that in a way that's loving and engaging and thought through and that points to the gospel. Yeah, and like you were saying, I've heard that argument put forward before as as well that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, uh, most often by people who are just. Uh, who might have some kind of cultural identification with Christianity, but don't really know anything about it. Um, like you referred to uh, Biden or more liberal leaning Christians who want to seem or want to be open-minded and so on. Uh, but I was just wondering, uh, mm. I, it's a claim that I've never, or I don't know if it's one that Muslims argue. Uh, is this the widespread belief among Muslims that, that us as Christians and, and they worship the same God? Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because if you put this question to a, to a Muslim, you would get a different answer depending on the Muslim that you're talking to. Instinctively, a lot of Muslims are going to say, yes, it's the same God, because that's what the Quran claims. The Quran claims that the, the God of Islam, the God who revealed the Quran through the angel Gabriel to Muhammad, is the same God who is the God of you know Jesus, uh, Moses, Abraham, all of the Old Testament. Uh, Muslims have been taught to believe that you know Islam is really a continuity of you know Judaism, Christianity, and then Islam is the final revelation. So on the one hand, they believe that. On the other mm -hmm. hand, the Quran is incredibly negative about the Christian understanding of, of God. It attacks the doctrine of the Trinity time, time and time again. And I've had many Muslims over the years say to me things like, well, you Christians believe in three gods. And of course, the moment a Muslim says that to a Christian, then of course they are by definition, therefore saying, well, you don't believe in the same God. Because if Muslims mm -hmm. believe in one God and we believe in three gods, then something very different is going on. So I think many Muslims would give lip service to the fact the answer is yes, but actually in the way that they behave and the language they use, the implication is no. So on the Muslim side, it's it's actually much more much more complicated. I know I have many Muslim friends over the years who I think have seen their job to be to you know pull me back to you know true monotheism. That Andy is an errant monotheist. He's gone off down some strange, almost polytheistic leaning. And if he could just come back to the one true path, 
then you'll be okay. And and again, I, I sort of smile slightly at that because I think that's got so many things wrong on so many levels. But again, yeah, there's complexity. There's complexity there. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to work out in my mind some of the the nuances and the differences between because I'm I'm hearing almost um, a couple of different forms of this argument. Uh, mm. Because on the one hand, the form that I'm much more familiar with that I've responded to in articles and podcasts would be the more postmodern uh, religious yep. pluralism uh, hypothesis. But then there's also the form of this argument, which is more coming from an Islamic worldview, as you just explained. Uh, can you draw it a little yeah. bit more for our listeners what, what those differences are and the nuances of the, sure. the, the difference there? Sure. And actually, to make it even more complicated, Aaron, I'd say there's, oh, there's, there's nuances. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's nuances <laughs> in between. So you're definitely right. At one, at perhaps the extreme end, you've got that sort of, I don't like to, I'm always conscious of labels because it, it, it sort of risks simplifying things. But let's mm-hmm. say that more kind of liberal, progressive, uh, sort of pluralist idea that puts everyone into the same box. And actually, for many in that camp, it wouldn't just be Muslims and Christians and, 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 and Jews who are in that box. They put everyone in that box. I mean, I had... You know, when I was based in Canada before I moved to Scotland, I had a you know a good friend there at the University of, of Toronto who was a pluralist, and he would literally he literally would say everyone worships the same God. You know, mm-hmm. everyone has their path up the mountain, and you know there's the Buddhist path, the Hindu path, and and so on and so forth. So you've got that whole camp. Um, then I think you've got you know somewhere in the middle you've got the Muslims I describe who who I think are struggling to hold two ideas together. Actually, I think they're struggling to hold together the idea that the Quran wants to. You know, sort of the Quran very much tries to position itself as a continuity of what's gone before. And not just the continuity, the culmination. So Muslims would say that, you know, Muhammad is the last of the prophets, the seal of the prophets. Some Muslims would go further and say that the you know the Bible's been corrupted, so we can't know what it says, so therefore you the Quran. But it's the same family and the same idea. Um, but on the one hand, they also want to, you know, be very clear that well, the Christians have got their view of God totally wrong. And you could push that idea of wrongness so far you're almost into the other God camp. But then also in that same box, Aaron, I'd put Christians who are really sort of uh, like, you know, sort of flip-flop a bit on this. On the one hand, we'd say, well, of course it's a different, you know, very different understanding of God because of Jesus and so forth. But then on the other hand, to go, you know, Muslims do, of course, you know, they talk about one God, one God is a creator and all of these things. So surely it's the same one God. And a good example of that position might be in the, in the book, um, in the sort of early uh, chapter in the book on this, I quote um, I quote uh, the Pope uh, from a few years ago, you know, for our Catholic mm-hmm. friends who said something along those lines. Now, you know, I'm a Protestant, but I have many Catholic friends, and I don't believe the Pope was going full liberal. I think he was just, again, playing with that. They're all very closely related. And I think the thing that drove, drove me to write the book and the question that lies at the heart of it is when people use the word God, what do we mean by that word? So often when we talk to our friends and other faiths, Aaron, I think the, the problem we do is we use words and we assume that everybody in the room means the same thing. So Christians use the word God. Our Muslim friends use the word God. Our atheist friends use the word God. They say they don't believe in God. And we assume that word has the same reference, the same meaning in each case. And I think it's that's where so many mistakes begin. And I found over the years it incredibly helpful with Muslims say, okay, you know, you guys believe in God, right? Yes, we do. Okay, tell me about the gods you believe in. What, what's Allah like? What's your understanding of God? You know, and where there are similarities, be honest. Go, oh, that's interesting. As a Christian, I believe that too. But I also believe some very different things. And interesting as well, with atheists too, when your atheist friends say they don't believe in God, just with a twinkle in your eye, it's worth saying, well, when you say you don't believe in God, what don't you believe in? What, what does the word God mean to you? 
because often you get some incredible caricature of what Christians believe. And then that gives a way in to go, look, with respect, that's actually not what Christians are saying when we say we believe in, in God. And so I think, yeah, the key yeah. thing is what we mean by the word God. Um, and so often we, we don't ask that question. Yeah. And, and so it's that issue, that specific issue that you are addressing in this book, not so much the uh, postmodern religious pluralism, but the the key distinctions in between uh, uh, the key distinctions on what uh, who on who God is uh, between Christianity and Islam. And so uh, what would be some of the broad contrasts before we get into hmm. uh, the differences of, uh, of of how God or Allah is seen between the two religions? What are some of the broad contrasts in the Christian worldview versus uh, the Islamic worldview? Well, it's interesting you say, to pick up both those things very briefly, Aaron, is that I think what I realized is I, as I was thinking around the book, that the two things came together nicely. The question of, of who is God, which I think is the bigger question. I think often we, 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 we mess around with questions like, you know, does God exist? Which is a, not an un, unimportant question, but it's not a question the Bible or, in fact, the Quran are re- remotely interested in. Uh, that's kind of taken as given, really. Mm-hmm. The question is, who is God? What is he like? Um, so I think there's that, but when you explore that question, it also very nicely actually addresses that sort of pluralist question because the pluralist, uh, understanding all gods are essentially the same really only works if either, you know, through willful, willful ignorance or actual outright deceit, you sort of push the, what is God like question under the table. You go, don't ask that question. We don't ask that question. We just, everyone believes in the same God. Right. Um, but the moment that you actually take two very, fleshed out conceptions of god that the quranic understanding of god or the biblical understanding of god and you and you actually look at them carefully so it becomes blindingly obvious they are staggeringly different and in one sense not merely have you given some interesting insights into perhaps muslim christian dialogue you've actually answered the pluralist piece because if if those two are you know islam and christianity are radically different I mean, goodness knows what it's going to look like when we then get to Hinduism or Buddhism or anything else, because, you know, Islam is perhaps the, the religion you'd expect to be the nearest uh, to Christianity. It turns out to be miles apart. So that's the first thing. The second thing you mentioned, worldview. I'm very glad you mentioned that, because in the book, what I do in, in, in the third chapter is talk about the fact that, you know, when we talk to someone from a different faith, figuring out what the right questions to ask can be difficult, because often Muslims and Christians, you know, we sort of talk past each other because we haven't figured out a framework for, for actually talking together. And in the book, I, I offer four questions that, you know, you or I might use the term worldview questions, but to somebody else, I would just say, they're just questions. They're just discussion questions. And the questions I, I offer in the book are, you know, is there a God and, and what is he like, which is what we've just been talking about for, for a few minutes. But you might also add to that, um, what are human beings? What does it mean to be a human being? Um, the Bible, and it turns out the Bible and the Quran have very different understandings of, of that which actually flow out of the god question because the, the the nature the question of who god is and what is he like actually impacts well what is it what is god got that god going to do when he then creates human beings and of course mm-hmm. in the in the bible we have humans created in god's image the, the quran doesn't have that idea and then the third and fourth questions what's gone wrong with the world and what's the solution but those four questions are great for putting to anybody whether you're talking to a muslim hindu buddhist or an atheist is there a god what is he like what are we as human beings? What's gone wrong with the world and what's the solution? And as I say, when you compare Christianity and Islam, the answers to those four questions are profoundly different, all flowing from the differences in the first question. 
Yeah. So what would be the, uh, the Islamic answers to those questions? Well, there's a, I could very cheekily say, just buy the book. And there's the, uh, there's the, yeah. <laughs> in, in a nutshell. So I'll, I'll do the book in, 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 uh, in, nutshell, in, yeah. in, in I'll do the book in, in 90 seconds or two minutes and then my publisher will get very cross because all of the thousands of listeners to your podcast won't need to go and buy it. Um, but to, to forget the beginning, um, I would say there are five key attributes of the God of the Bible uh, that are there almost almost every page. They're over the whole of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And they are that God is relational. Uh, he's a God who, who can be known and a God who, who delights to be known and desires to be known and has created us for a relationship with him. Uh, he's, so his God is relational. Uh, he's a God who can be known. He's a God who reveals not just his commands, but also his attributes, his character. He's a God who is who is holy. He doesn't just command things because he desires to command them. He commands them and instructs them because he is holy and righteous uh, and goodness itself. He's a God who is love. Um, and he's a God who has demonstrated that love through through suffering uh, in the person, primarily the person of Jesus and the cross. And those five attributes really like the heart of the biblical understanding of who God is. Turn to the Quran. The Quran denies or rejects all five of them. Um, totally, you know, throws some of them out the window. Uh, directly contradicts some of them. Uh, rewrites others of them. Uh, and so it's almost like the, the entire understanding of who God is has been totally rewired when it comes uh, to uh, to the Quran. And then moving rapidly through the other three questions in the in the Bible, human beings are created in God's image. Uh, Genesis chapter. Chapter one. So we're not just the dust of the earth. Yes, we're, that's what we're made from. But we are far more than that. Uh, God created us not to be just uh, not to be servants, but to be sons and daughters designed for covenant close relationship with him. You see that throughout the whole of the Bible from the opening pages in Genesis through to that beautiful picture of the new heavens and the new earth in, in Revelation 21. And that has some actually really important implications. Um, if you look through history, human rights uh, theory that we uh, you know hold so much by in the West today, all of that actually is 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 built upon Christian foundations. Actually, that human beings have inherent value and dignity; uh, that they're, they're not just atoms and particles. The Quran, on the other hand, throws that idea out. It has no no time for that idea. And human beings are just uh, servants, just just created to uh, to obey. Yes, we have some responsibilities that the rest of creation don't, but we are not. Uh, created to be uh, sons and daughters. We are certainly not image bearers, anything like that. Um, and then moving on, penultimate question, what's gone wrong with the world? Uh, the uh, the Bible, uh, the Quran would say, actually, not very much, really. Human beings, just a little bit forgetful. You know, God wants us to behave a certain way. We haven't behaved a certain way, uh, but it's okay. It's only, you know, we can, we can fairly much put it right through our own efforts um, with a bit of help from God sending us commands our way, but nothing drastic is needed. Uh, the Bible, on the other hand, uh, says actually something far more, far more serious has gone on. Our very nature mm. has become corrupted uh, through sin. In fact, an analogy I use in the book, it's a bit like going uh, to your family doctor uh, with some stomach pains and him diagnosing stage four stomach cancer and you being so frightened, you go for a second opinion with another doctor and him saying, oh, no, it's just uh, acid ind indigestion. It's quite critical which of those diagnoses is the right one uh, because yeah. they're fundamentally different. One will kill you. One's an inconvenience. And that's really the difference between the Bible and the Quran. And then lastly, flowing out of that, the Quran says all that you need to do as human beings to put things right is here are God's commandments. You know, he's given you plenty of them because we're forgetful and we forget them. Obey them, work hard, and you can kind of earn enough merit through good deeds that you can, you know, God may forgive you and allow you into the great party in the sky that is heaven. The Bible, on the other hand, says, no, we need far more than just self-help. We need far more than just some good advice. We actually need a rescue. We need a rescuer. We need a saviour. And at the heart of the biblical understanding is actually we need someone to come and do for us what we could do for ourselves, which was, of course, Jesus. And 
if we put our trust and our hope in him, uh, the result is not as ending up in a party in the sky, as ending up in the new heavens and the new earth and dwelling in God's presence forever, I being back where it all began in the garden in close relationship with God. And so four very, very different answers to those questions. Yeah, that was three I mean, minutes, not two minutes. I do apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though they, it's hard to imagine them uh, contrasting much more than they already do. Uh, there's a, even just in a you know, like you said, a ninety second explanation, you can see that there is a there's a big big gap when it comes to uh, the most fundamental questions of both of our faiths between Christianity and Islam, and uh, and just quite how different they are. Uh, it almost shows that if one tries to make the claim that they are just essentially the same or uh, various paths all going to the same destination, that uh, this is somebody who has a very, very superficial understanding of hmm. our two faiths. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, I'm always trying to find the, you know, the, the analogy, the metaphor to help people sort of understand this. Because obviously for, for you and I who have big bookshelves and spend our lives immersed in in this, you know, we've had the time to think it through. I think there are other people in finding a way into this. And I suppose the analogy I've used over the years, Aaron, would be somebody who comes along and says all religions are essentially the same. That's rather like my saying, well, I don't need to go to the library or the bookstore because every book is essentially the same. Anyone, anyone, anyone who tells you otherwise is just a publisher or a writer trying to flog you a book. But, but every book is essentially uh, the, the same. And, and you, exactly, if you said that and you, the person who said that to you was serious, you would you would smile at a kind of slightly worried, am I in the room with a lunatic person? Or you'd at least take them aside for a quiet chat and go, no, 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 no. no. You see, once you read a couple, you'll see that's not the case. And I think it's the same when somebody says all the religions of the world are essentially the same. Really, it reveals that you haven't actually studied any, any of them properly. And the ironic thing is, often the motivation is you want to be gracious to people. You know, being generous, mm -hmm. that's often said because people want to bring harmony. Um, Miroslav Volf would be a case in point. His book, Allah, a Christian, uh, a Christian Response, from a few years ago, uh, you know, really was written out of this desire to bring Muslims and Christians together. But what I say in my book is that actually the irony there is actually you end up treating, in this case, Muslims with deep disrespect, because rather than saying, let me take the time to to figure out and understand what you actually believe, what the, what the Quran actually says, and not not trying to bend it or twist it or ignore parts of it because it doesn't look like me, why not allow people to be different? Why not, why not allow our Muslim friends to be Muslims? And I say this in the book. I mean, obviously, I want my Muslim friends to find Christ, but I don't, I, don't want them to, I don't want them to do that by sort of deceiving or twisting or manipulating things and making them think it's the same, because it, mm -hmm. because it isn't. And, you, and I think you do damage to both Christianity and to Islam, ironically, uh, if you squeeze everyone uh, together. Much better to be honest about the differences. And if you're truly friends and neighbours, actually, you can cope with differences, um, you know, I think if the people you spend your time with, you have to tiptoe around and, and pretend we're all the same for fear that the friendship won't last, then you're not real friends in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that makes me think of something that you were saying earlier, too, about how we live in an age that seems to be very uh, conflict averse or wanting to avoid confrontation of any kind, particularly on matters of religion and politics. Mm. Uh, and I think the and, and you see this all over our culture is that uh, or our culture in, in the West, in America and UK, is uh, this attempt to press down uh, uniformity among all different people groups rather than finding 
you know, a unity in the things that we can agree on and the common values that we have amongst our diversity, being able to appreciate and live with our differences while still being like you were saying, friends, neighbors, colleagues, mm-hmm. and so on. Whereas, um, it, w- I think within postmodernism and, uh, and just a lot of strong currents in our, uh, culture right now, there's instead just this, this great pressure to make people uniform, uh, and to, and to silence those who would dissent from that. I think very simply, I think you're right. Although I think what's, I think there's something more interesting, well, something more, even more complex going on, isn't there? That I think you've got these almost two opposite trends in, in culture. You've got the uniformity. So, you know, we mustn't disagree over everything. Uh, and then actually perhaps in some workplaces where we want everyone to politically think the same, because, you know, the last thing we want is any, is any difference because they, that might harm people or trigger somebody or gosh, we wouldn't know how to deal with difference. So we, we squeeze everything. But then on the other hand, you hop onto particularly onto social media and it's, and it's people try dividing the tribes and sort of destroying uh, one mm. another. And this tendency that we live, it's the same postmodern thing, fueling it, this, this tendency to divide people into smaller and smaller communities, um, you know, where you're differentiated by your race or your sexuality or politics, your gender. And I think right now, the world is crying out for a model that says here is a way that people who are very different can be very different and and disagree with each other on some things, but also find some some ways of being together. And as a Christian, I, I like with twinkle of my eye to go, well, isn't that the gospel defined? Because the gospel is designed to bring peace between those who would otherwise not be together. Think of Galatians 3. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, uh, you know, slave or free, uh, male or female. Uh, this whole theme that runs through the New Testament of the, of the, of the particularly the, the barriers between people, uh, Jew and Gentile, and things having been broken down in Christ. I remember, I think it was, you know, Tim Keller once observing that he said, you know, a sign that you're, the church you're in is a healthy church is if you look around on a Sunday morning, there should be people in church with you on a Sunday morning who would be your abject enemies were it not for the gospel that's brought you together, the gospel should bring together, you know, left winger and right winger, Republican and and, and Democrats, you know, sort of uh, Humvee, uh, Humvee driving carbon polluter and environmentalist, um, you know, people from different sides of different tribes who are Christians should be able to go that in Christ we are closer, uh, even though even though we may disagree about other things, um, you know, the church isn't a place where we all pretend to believe the same thing. We're united in Christ. Um, who can hold us despite our other differences. And I think it's a huge opportunity for Christians in today's culture to go, let's model how we can actually not squish everyone together, but at the same time, not destroy one another. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So circling back to uh, the topic of the book, one of the, or the way that we know uh, who God is both in Christianity and in Islam is through our authoritative religious texts. And so, uh, and, and that is on, the, that's the specific area of your academic study is the text, right? Mm-hmm. And so, right. Uh, and so I thought we would go into uh, the issue of whenever it comes to uh, the religious texts between Christianity and Islam. So the Bible and the Quran, uh, how do the Bible and the Quran uh, compare to one another as historical texts, religious texts, and uh, particularly in their historical reliability? Oh my word! There's a there's a there's a question that uh, you like throw these questions that I think, gosh, there's a there's a ten minute answer. Um, well, let's uh, let's begin by saying again, this comes down to the language that we use because it's very it's very it's very natural to compare the Bible and the Quran like like we've just done in this in this question. But that sort of 
sort of risks papering over the fact they are vastly different, even the way they're constructed. So the the Quran, if you just take Muslim, what Muslims say about it at face value, and we could we could push back on some of these claims critically, uh, but just take what Muslims say about it at face value. Muslims believe that the Quran uh, is the published. Uh, series of revelations that, the, that Muhammad, the founder of Islam, received by the angel Gabriel over a 23-year prophetic career from, uh, you know, five, sort of uh, 500, uh, 610 AD through to uh, 632. Um, so it's it's come through one man. It's in one tiny historical period. It's all in one genre, one type of writing. It's all written as if it's God speaking in the first person. And it's fairly small. It's about 114 uh, chapters roughly the length of the new testament a little bit shorter um so that's the quran the bible on the other hand we have the bible of course is written not over 23 years it was revealed over 1500 years uh through something like 40 different authors it, there's 66 different books in there of different styles and genres we have biography in the case of the gospels we have history in the, in the old testament we have law and uh, and, so- and songs and, and hymns, uh, letter writing, genealogy, all kinds of things. So even to try and compare the Bible to the Quran gets a little bit uh, a little bit complex. And here's the other thing as well. Of course, Muslims believe the Quran to be literally the word of God. When they say the word of God, that's what they would understand it, it to be that God actually wrote this Himself. It's the it's the closest thing we have to God's kind of self expression because they believe that the the revelations that were received by Muhammad were actually copies of the eternal text that's been there since the beginning of creation next to Allah in heaven. Um, that's closer in some ways to what Christians would claim for Jesus, that it's the ultimate self-expression of God. And in fact, some Muslim writers, as well as Christian ones, have said actually the best comparison is actually not perhaps the Bible and the Quran as the Quran and Jesus. Um, mm. You know, in the, in the in Islam, the word becomes text. In Christianity, the word becomes flesh. Mm. But then flowing out of what you've just uh Yvonne, the way you frame that that question, I think because of those different authors and that greater time span, all those other pieces, I think the Bible is a much more, for me, reliable text because purely on the ground, on historical grounds, that you've got different eyewitnesses and different writers and then different and, and different witnesses, as it were. The Quran all stands on the testimony of one of one man. In fact, we're in a similar position with Islam to what we are with our friends of the Mormon faith. You know, the Book of Mormon. You know, Joseph Smith wanders off into the woods reports to see an angel who, who gives him this special revelation no one else saw it just him we have only his word for it Muhammad's case you know he wanders up a mountain or a few other places only he, he saw the angel this is what the angel gave me this is the final revelation um and that makes it slightly tough when you want to ask the question well how do we know that it's true whereas I think one of the powerful things for me with the bible is that despite the fact it's got 40 different authors 66 books 1500 years of history three possibly even four different languages in their different times and places and cultures there's a unified voice that comes through um we take that for granted sometimes as christians but you think it's a miracle for me the bible is not this mishmash actually um because it's so different but actually it stitches together beautifully um and so that's where i'd begin uh, i think answering that question much more that could be said but that's right that's where i'd begin yeah, and as you said, the the story of the Quran, as you just gave, is the story as it is told uh, by Muslims. But uh, as as I've seen, there's been you know historical textual research, mm-hmm. much of which you've done and, and, and pioneered in that field uh, in your studies that um, that shed. I, I guess we should just just say shed more light on yes. that story, and maybe the light exposes some uh, some concerning issues. 
where the story oh, behind the Quran so, came about. Absolutely. Well, um, you you were so modest there to go. Um, more of the concerning issues, I, I actually think, not not by just not just the work I've done, the work of many, many, many other um, critical scholars, both uh, both Christian and secular, actually, and particularly I would say the last ten to thirty, to our last twenty to thirty years, I think the foundations have actually been blown right open. For, mm. My own work, for example, just to, to talk about that for a couple of minutes, was that. Um, when I was a speaker's corner all those years ago, I told that story earlier. One of the arguments the Muslims would use is, well, the Quran's a miracle because Muhammad was illiterate. He didn't know how to read or write according to tradition, but the Quran is this quite sophisticated work of Arabic literature. Therefore, it's a miracle, right? Because how could an illiterate person do this? And that sounds very persuasive, actually, if those premises stand up until you discover that actually that we have lots of cultural products, writings and traditions that have come down to us from oral societies that are very sophisticated. So the, the famous Greek poet Homer, whose uh, who's writings, the Iliad and the Odyssey, arguably mm-hmm. perhaps some of the bedrock of the Western literary tradition, uh, he didn't have access to writing because he because his his texts, come, those poems come from long before literacy. And it turns out there are tools and techniques that are available to you as an oral performer that enable you to construct quite long works, be they poems or uh, religious texts, without access to writing, we won't go into all the details now, but they're, they're, they are pretty sophisticated. Mm. Um, but what's interesting is they leave their hallmark on the text. Scholars can then come along and we can look at a text from antiquity and we go, oh, look, look at all these features here. These show us that this text was originally delivered live in performance by an oral person standing in front of an audience and composing kind of extemporaneously as they were speaking, preaching or whatever. And uh, we've those te- those techniques have been refined over the last decades, and we now know of hundreds of texts from around the world, different cultures uh, that have been put together in that very oral way. And basically, my PhD was coming along and taking those techniques that we'd use on hundreds of other texts, but other scholars have done this, and applying them to the Quran. And lo and behold, the Quran has all the features you would expect of a text that was created live in performance by an oral illiterate storyteller uh, or mm. singer or poet and so it doesn't look like it came fully formed from heaven miraculously it looks like what you'd expect a seventh century oral document uh to uh, to look like and uh and when you discover that that sort of you know the wheels then come off really because suddenly it looks like a very human product not a very divine product yeah so how did it go from being an oral performance to a written document yeah, so what happened is uh, my, my my argument and the argument of many others would be that so Muhammad preaches and teaches the material in the Quran orally during his uh, his career. In fact, if you look at the Muslim histories themselves, there are lots of accounts of you know some situation arising, and Muhammad just happens to be able to pop up and give a revelation that suits the context, and that looks very oral. Um, you know, somebody who has the ability to to, to can, can uh, do that kind of extemporaneously. Then when Muhammad dies in 632 AD, he dies quite suddenly. Um, Muslims were not expecting his his death. He was, um, according to some accounts, he was poisoned uh, by one of his enemies towards the end of his life and, and never fully recovered and then actually died relatively quickly. And so there was no plan uh, either for a succession, which led to all kinds of political issues, but no plan for the Quran. And initially, for the first kind of wee while, you know, Muslims are quite happy to just, um, the early Muslims are happy because they've, 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 they're just reciting the bits of the Quran they've memorized. But then what happens is people who've learned some of what Muhammad had preached begin to die off. And so the, uh, the, rule, the, the chap who was ruling uh, Islam after Muhammad's death, the caliph, you know, uh, concerned Muslim leaders come to him and say, we need to do something because folk who memorized what the prophet had taught are dying. What are we going to do? 
And so he puts out an order that actually there's to be a collection exercise. And a gentleman called Zaid ibn Thobit, who was Muhammad's personal secretary and scribe, he was given the task of going and collecting as much of the Quran as he could find. And he tells us uh, uh, in, the history, in the Muslim histories, actually, that he you know, collected bits that some people had written down. Some people had written bits down. Some people obviously could read and write. So they made scratchings on bones and stones and palm leaves and whatever. A lot of it from people's memories. And then he collected together all the bits of the Quran he could find. And then one authoritative edition of the Quran was, was kind of published. Uh, and then interestingly, a few years go by. And a few years later, uh, now the third caliph is on the, is on the throne. By now, there are different competing manuscripts circulating. So others have obviously had the same idea. And Muslims are beginning to fight with one another over what the Quran should say. And one of the Muslim generals who's leading the Muslim armies up on the battlefields in Syria, where the Muslim armies are expanding the empire, you know, sends a very concerned report to the caliph saying, we've got to sort this out, because otherwise Islam is going to fracture into different sort of uh, factions over, over the Quran. And again, an order is put out that all the different manuscripts and bits of the Quran should be collected. Uh, one authoritative version is, is edited. And then here's the key thing. And this is right in the Muslim histories them, themselves. It's then reported that once that authoritative version has been published, uh, the caliph, uh, Caliph Utman, uh, he had all the other competing manuscripts consigned to the flames. So uh, yeah. every other uh, version of the Quran was destroyed in the fire. And that's a real problem for, for critical scholars today, because we would love to you know, have access to, gosh, you know, what was circulating in the early Islam? There are hints here and there of verses that were once in the Quran that aren't any longer or that, you know, people who would read bits of the Quran differently. But all that, a lot of that material has been, been lost to us. But again, that shows, Aaron, that to go, the Quran has a very complicated history. And many Muslims are not aware of this. I remember speaking at a university event in Canada a few years ago. I told that story in the lecture. And after the event, these two uh, impeccably dressed Muslims came up to talk to me, these two ladies. Uh, they were medical students, it turned out. And they basically, very politely, but but they didn't use this exact word, but they basically accused me of making this up because um, they said they'd never heard this story before. They, they weren't sure about its authenticity. And uh, and it was, and I said, so, you know, no one's ever told you that, that the early manuscripts were the car were burned. They said, well, no, we never heard this. I said, well, it's there in the Hadith, your traditions. And they said they'd never read this. So I remember saying to them, I said, okay, Let's look it up right now. But rather than me pull up some random website, tell me, what website would you normally go to to read the Hadith, the Muslim traditions? And they said, well, we would use the Muslim Society of North America website. I went, brilliant, because that's where I go to. So get your phone. I had them do it. Go to that website. I said, right, put in this Hadith reference. And they pulled it up. And I've never before literally seen someone go white. You know, I've heard that expression. They went white. This mm. person, you know, the color drained from their her cheeks. Mm -hmm. and, I, and she said, I've, I've never seen this before. I said, interesting. And I said, the way you've responded tells me you see, you're, you're obviously a brilliant mind. You, that's why you're at this university. You see the issue here. She said, what, my, mom, my, my moms have never told me about this. So, well, maybe you need to ask yourself why. Um, because the implications, you know, for the, for, you know, if this is the word of God, as Muslims believe, being just burnt in order to produce a standard edition are pretty drastic. And I say, I always say to people, look, you know, Christians have, we are manuscript traditions. Our manuscripts have some differences that are what are called textual variants in them because when scribes copied the Bible, they made mistakes and so forth. But never in Christian history did, uh, you know, the leaders of the church go, let's burn all the difficult manuscripts to get a simple text with no questions. Christians have always studied the differences, discussed them, talked about them. And that's why as Christians today, we can be confident in our scripture because yeah. You know, in a, in a sense, we can see the work that's been done. And if you want to see, you know, those early manuscripts, 
you can go look at them. Uh, in fact, yeah. the greatest repository of biblical manuscripts uh, is there in your country. It's a, it's a, it's a Dallas Theological uh, Seminary, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Dan Wallace and others have put together a brilliant resource with Christians at the forefront, not of hiding the differences, but digitizing them, talking about them, making them accessible. Whereas in Islam, it's been a case of hide them away, don't talk about them, don't go there, don't tell people, uh, because I think the, the leaders fear what would happen if if many Muslims were aware of the history of their text. Yeah, what are the implications for this discussion on the the comparison of the Bible and Quran and their reliability and, mm. and what this means for our, our competing views of God? Uh, what does it mean for that? Well, I, I think it's pretty explosive, right? I think ultimately, um, I like to say, I mean, Islam stands on on two on two pillars, right? It stands on on the Quran and it stands on Muhammad. And if you can't trust the Quran, if you can't be sure of the Quran, its reliability, its provenance, whether it actually came from heaven. Uh, if it comes to Muhammad, we haven't really talked about him, but there's there's big historical questions about Muhammad's biography. We have hundreds of years between the death of Muhammad and our and our best, you know, earliest biographies of Muhammad, a time gap that's not there for, for Jesus. So if either of those pillars goes, you, you've got a problem. And I would say I think both are looking pretty shaky with the increasing work that's been doing, which really means Muslims are left with I believe because I believe because I I believe. Um, now, Christians are not immune from that. I've met Christians who sort of take the line, well, I just believe. And I go, well, okay, that's fair enough. But the problem is if that's the best you've got, you can't commend that faith to somebody. You need to be able to say why you believe. And so I think Muslims have a real issue here. Hop over to the, to the biblical side. And again, I suppose you might say Christianity stands on on two pillars. It stands on, on the Bible, but it certainly stands far more so on, on Jesus. Um, and to go, you know, even if we, we lost the majority of the Bible, even if we had any other Gospels or a couple of them, we can know enough about, I think, the ministry of Jesus from the extra biblical stories, from the way the early church behaved and so many other things. You know, I, I often do debates on the resurrection. And I don't I only rely very lightly on the on the Bible. I actually rely on a lot of secular uh, historical material. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for Christians, we're in a very different position. I think our biblical manuscripts are far better. Um, they've been far better preserved, far better looked after, far better talked about. We have all those multiple witnesses that I talked about earlier for the life of Jesus. You know, we have the four Gospels plus Paul's material, uh, you know, all written within a lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And then, of course, you have Jesus himself. And I think it's fascinating for me. So much comes back to when you compare Jesus with Muhammad. And I sometimes do this with Muslims. I say, well, let's not talk about the critical stuff. Let's just assume, you know, the Quran is reliable. Let's assume the Bible is reliable. And let's talk about Jesus and Muhammad and compare the two founders. I think there's night and day between them, because I think in Muhammad, you have somebody who, with the very greatest respect to my Muslim friends, ultimately used religion for political ends. I think Muhammad was animated by a love of the Arab people. He felt the Arabs needed a religion to glue them together from a set of disparate warring tribes to be a unified force. And he was right, because once he'd unified them through the force of religion, look at the great empire they built. The, the, the Muslim empire was one of the world's great empires up there with the Greeks and the Persians and the and the British and so on and so forth. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, you know, was somebody who actually, you know, laid, laid down his life and was one to whom violence was done, not one who used uh, violence one who made extraordinary claims for himself and then demonstrated those claims, not just by saying, well, this is true, therefore you should believe it, but actually dying and rising from the dead. And I always say, I think people who die and rise from the dead have pretty high credibility in my book. Mm. Yeah, that credibility, that's what it adds. The, the, the implications of the differences between the historical reliability of the Bible and Quran and, and, and all these different issues, you know, uh, I think it adds credibility, adds confidence. 
to our faith. Um, our faith is not based upon historical reliability or historical resources. Our, our faith is in Christ, but this knowledge and uh, and the in these facts and these truths help to inform that faith and to increase our confidence. To um, you know, I, I know that there's been times whenever I've been tempted to doubt in my faith, and it's been like like you mentioned the. Uh, the things that we know about Jesus's resurrection and the the eyewitness testimony and all the data and, and facts that there are out there that there are out there that help to keep my faith grounded when I was tempted to doubt and and yeah. so the, the these issues have an immense immense uh, consequence for this discussion of you have these two competing views of God but which one is true I think that's right and I think I think I'm always very careful to say to Christians, look, you don't, not all of us are called to do, you know, hugely sort of deep intellectual dives on stuff. Some of us are, some of us are wired to think that way. Others are wired in such a way we could read a few books and go, oh, that's good. Others are as a wired, but we're just not plugged into that kind of world, but it's good to know that world exists. Um, and to know that you can sort of, as it were, you know, lift the lid and see that it's not just, Hey, I believe because I believe because I believe. And again, because mm-hmm. I'm a great fan of analogies. I mean, I used to be in my in my 20s and early 30s. I was terrified of of flying, and um, and would only fly very reluctantly. And it was white knuckles all the way. And I think one of the things that helped me over that was uh, on one occasion having a friend who was a pilot. And uh, I would I spent hours asking inane questions, you know, why the wings won't fall off and stuff. And and she very patiently, you know talked through the data and you know sent me long geeky engineering articles because i like that kind of and actually i eventually the fear of fly was sort of dissipated as i especially looked under the hood and went oh i don't need to worry on the other hand if i'd you know sort of said to my friend who was a pilot i'm terrified of flying she'd go, oh man no don't ask i'm scared as well actually you know people don't know <laughs> but actually those wings are just held on with rubber bands it's absolutely a miracle those things don't fall from the sky i never got a plane again and I think it's important as a Christian to go, you don't need a, a PhD in aeronautics, but to know you could ask the questions and actually people have done the work and they're, you know, underneath the hood, as it were, there is great evidence for the resurrection, great evidence for the Bible. And if you so wish, you could do a PhD in this stuff. And uh, it's hugely important versus I think in Islam, where it's far more of the rubber band analogy of going, well, we don't ask that question. We don't ask that question. We don't ask that question. Mm. In fact, one of my... You know, one of my dear friends departed a few years now, but a dear friend of mine was a was a was a guy was a was a chap called uh, Nabil Qureshi, mm-hmm. and Nabil wrote a wonderful book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He was a, a Pakistani Muslim. He and his family immigrated to the United States, and uh, he became a Christian uh, while there, about a sort of four or five year period. But part of his testimony was as he began asking questions, he found that he asked questions of his Muslim leaders, and he didn't get answers. He got superficial answers or no answers. He pushed on the Christians he knew, and no one said to him, oh, you can't ask about the resurrection, or you can't ask about the Bible. His Christian friends, well, let me give you the answer to that. And he's, you know, he be, and over time, as he read and studied and studied, you know, coming rapidly to the, came eventually to the conclusion that there was tremendously good evidence for who Jesus was, and really bad evidence uh, for, for Islam. And I always say to Christian, you know, pastors and, and leaders and so forth, that's why it's crucial in the church, we, we allow questions you know, mm-hmm. to be asked, especially for young people and students, you know, never run away from questions, never tell a, never tell a Christian, that's a bad question. You shouldn't ask that. Um, important that people know that in, in the Christian faith, you can ask questions. Um, ultimately faith does mean trust. There comes a point where you've got to exercise trust. Uh, but faith in the Bible is never blind 
faith. You know, God never says, just take a leap into the dark. Rather, the Bible says, here's the evidence. Here's the, here's the evidence of the life of Jesus, the resurrection, and so many other things. Now, on the basis of that, will you put your, will you put your trust? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And so, uh, yeah, just, uh, I hope that our listeners leave with, with that, uh, ask the questions, whether they're listening to this as a Christian, as a Muslim, as a seeker, whoever it is, uh, to, to ask the questions, uh, and keep asking until you find the answers. Right. Uh, and so, you know, in addition to, uh, buying your book, which I hope everybody does, is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with for something as a takeaway for something that, uh, they should do and act in their lives based off of listening, listening to this conversation and reading your book? Oh, yeah. I, I, it's a couple of things I'd say, uh, Aaron. The first thing is, I think, you know, for listeners who are, who are Christians, um, you know, just really, I think just really pray for the Lord to give opportunities for you to talk about, about your faith. I think often we worry that there aren't opportunities or who should we be talking to or whatever. But I think begin with prayer. The best evangelism starts that way so why not pray pray that the lord would reveal you know people who you could talk to maybe people who are right under your nose we haven't thought about or he'll bring people across your path because that puts the onus on him rather than you sort of panic that you're not doing the evangelism you should just put the onus and the and the uh, onto onto the lord so so begin by praying maybe the start of each day pray that god would bring someone across your path that day you could share your faith with mm-hmm. um is the first thing uh, and then the other thing i would direct people to obviously we've covered a huge amount of ground uh, in this uh, in this interview, you asked some great questions, and thank you for for, for for plugging the book. But the other thing I'd recommend to people to the ministry that I work for, Solas, do check out uh, our website. It's uh, it's solas-cpc.org, or just search for me uh, on social media or online, because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of free resources uh, there, Aaron. People can dig into. We've got videos you can use in your evangelism. You know, great training materials, huge amount of stuff, and it's all free. Uh, anything you find on our website, please do download, share, repost, whatever you like. We don't put any restraints on it. And you'd also get a free uh, chapter of the book. So if you want to check out the book before you buy, you can get a free uh, chapter in print or audio. If you were an audio book person, the, the first chapter there is there for you. But there's so many great resources uh, for you, whether it's sharing your faith with a Muslim friend or an atheist friend or, or just being more confident in evangelism at work, at school or home. So, yeah, I'd recommend the Solas website and recommend praying. Excellent. Well, uh, I'll be sure to link those resources in the show notes. So anybody listening to this, make sure you check out the show notes where I'll have links to Andy's book as well as the Solar Center uh, and and your website as well so they can get access to all those resources. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So, well, hey, look, I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. I really, really appreciate your time joining us for this episode today. I, I think it's going to really bless and be helpful for a lot of people out there. Uh, So I just want to say thank you again for joining us on Filter. It's uh, been great. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.